please leave me a rating and a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever. Thank you. You know what? I mean, I've I've tried microdosing with LSD and didn't get much effect. I've tried microdosing with mushrooms and get somewhat more effect. And I think it's fine, but I think that people should not make that an excuse for not taking a full heroic Terrence McKenna five gram hit of a psychedelic <laughs> and having an actual fucking psychedelic experience. Right. It's it's escape from the Amazon. I had something to do with that, but mm. actually, the plants are doing this. You know, I think the plants, as if you think of them as ambassadors, or you know, they work for Gaia. Gaia has a message that it wants to get out to us, which is basically, wake up, you monkeys! You're destroying this place, and you have to wake up. You have to get wise. In New York City, on an average Saturday night, there are 150 ayahuasca ceremonies going on. You can take <laughs> your choice. There's so this That's is wild. not not a, an indigenous tradition anymore. You know, this has become a global thing. I mean, I could join the UDV or the Santo Daime, uh, you know, and then I could drink ayahuasca in the States anytime I want to. But I don't do cults. I don't join religions. (laughs) Why should I be required to join a religion to have a symbiotic relationship with these plants? I look at it as a biological relationship, not a religious relationship. This is part two of a three-part episode where I interviewed Dennis McKenna. I interviewed uh, Dennis McKenna with Joey Peters, your freelance reporter in the Twin Cities. We talk about psychedelics a lot in this episode. Dennis really focuses on them as a tool to help um, see the universe for, for what it is, ways of disassociating the ego, dissolving the ego, seeing the world as a pantheistic beauty, um, engaging in symbiosis with plants. I would just like to add that in case everyone thinks that the only way to have this um, beautiful philosophy that I actually do agree with, the only way to do that is to do psychedelics. I don't think that's true. Buddhism, Vipassana meditation, I believe the same things. You don't have to do psychedelics just in case you associate drugs with a certain type of person. Um, that is how it has been perceived and done in culture, but culture is not a true reflection of the world. So, you know, keep an open mind. Uh, do drugs, um, you know, but don't do them stupidly. Or don't do drugs and still see um, the universe as a big, wonderful collection in which we are all connected. <laughs> That's my intro. Here is the theme song. Here is the theme song.
the danger was to society. The danger was to the conventional norms, you know. I mean, Terence was often fond of saying that psychedelics are dangerous because they make you have funny ideas, you know. And funny ideas are inherently dangerous, you know. Funny ideas like maybe I don't need to go to Vietnam and kill people I've never met. Why would I want to do that? Well, you know, so then you've you've separated yourself from the culture that says this is what you need to do. You have to do that to serve God and country. Well, fuck God and country. It just doesn't feel right. I'm not going to do it. So it did catalyze a lot of rebellion, a lot of questioning of conventional norms, societal norms, and so on, which really needed to be questioned. Well, now that it's actually kind but, of getting mainstream, do you feel that it, it psychedelics are going to lose part of that because n- now they'll just maybe they'll in you know thirty years they'll be boring thing that old religious people do, or do, do you see what I mean? Yeah, I, I do. I, I do worry about that, uh, and I'm not sure that there's much you can do about it or that it's but i i I do think they lose a bit of their numinosity and their sort of spiritual impact if they become just another pharmaceutical or like Um, how like marble just bought a giant um weed company in canada yeah exactly or you know the compass and the usonas and all this i mean the corporate people are are jumping in and I'm concerned that these therapies will be developed uh, and made available to people in clinical context, people who have mental problems, you know, uh, and that's good to have them, you know, have, have, have the ability to apply them to these kinds of treatments. But you don't have to be mentally ill to benefit from a psychedelic. Mm -hmm. And I also, you know, so what about the rest of us? Is this something that's going to be only available to the elites who can afford it? And or will there be some mechanism where the rest of us can have access to subsidized psychedelics? (laughs) Yeah. And, And I'm also concerned about. You know, the, I mean, one of the big lessons of psychedelics that people are learning again or relearning is, you know, one of the lessons if, if psychedelics are messengers from Gaia, you know, the message is that we're getting estranged from nature, you know, yeah. and we need to reconnect with nature and re-understand our place in it. I'm not sure that substituting a synthetic psilocybin molecule given by white-coated doctors in clinics and laboratories is necessarily the way to go. I don't like the the corporatization and the corporate the co-optation of what were what are sacred medicines in a certain way by, you know, the the biomedical, psychopharmaceutical, industrial complex. I mean, maybe this is something that has to happen if psychedelics are going to be accepted. I would like to see some some balance on the other side where, you know, the, uh, the traditions are honored. You yeah. know, I don't want 
to see a situation where, yeah, you can take psilocybin as long as you go to a clinic, <laughs> pay a doctor, and have the experience. What if I don't want to do that? What if I want to go out into the field and collect mushrooms and take yeah. them myself? Am I going to be arrested for that? Because, I mean, we've certainly no. seen the, the wellness industry um, take mindfulness and um, commercialize and, and find ways of making money off of it and, you know, and do the exact opposite. I was this, in, this is what capitalism does. You know, um, um, I mean, if there's a buck to be made, it will be made. But And I was going to say, even I was in Peru last year and saw that there's just kind of a cottage industry for ayahuasca and um, geared toward tourists. You do some work in Peru, don't you? Yeah, I do. do you, so... You had a company, what was it called? Symbio. Is that still yeah. around, Symbio Life Sciences? No, Symbio Life Sciences is crashed and burned. Oh. Probably a good thing <laughs> <laughs> for complicated reasons. But I still work in Peru, and I, I do host retreats, and uh, so I'm guilty in that sense of what you're, you're, you're talking about. And but I try to, uh, you know, I, I rationalize that by you know uh, being able to say, well, we're we're trying to preserve the traditional practices, and also facilitate opportunities for people to come to a place that is the, the optimal for taking them, provide optimal setting. Mm -hmm for having these experiences and acknowledge that these are, uh, you know, these are derivative of these traditional practices and, and hopefully in some ways giving back to the community because here's the issue. You cannot fence these cultures off. You can't put them in reservations. Ayahuasca is now a global phenomenon. It's not confined to the Amazon. It's it's escaped from the Amazon. I had something to do with that, but mm. actually, the plants are doing this. You know, I think the plants, as if you think of them as ambassadors, or you know, they work for Gaia. Gaia has a message that it wants to get out to us which is basically wake up you monkeys, you're destroying this place and you have to wake up, you have to get wise, you know. I mean, it, it's spiritual and all that, but basically we're talking about biology here and co-evolution. So I think one thing that should be articulated in this argument, in this discussion, is that anybody, any human should have the right to initiate symbiosis with any damn plant they want we are this is again coming back to the fact that we're immersed in this ecology we're immersed in nature and despite the fact that you know 2000 years of judeo-christian tradition has tried to convince us that we're separate from nature we're better than nature we dominate it it exists for us to exploit mm -hmm. and deplete and basically wreck 
which is what we're doing, <laughs> you know, and that's where right now, this is where this perspective has gotten us, you know, where we're in a heap of shit. Yeah. And I think <laughs> this is why ayahuasca and these other things are actively trying to get out to a wider audience. I mean, I really do believe the plants are running things. And we should acknowledge that. And if you think about it, the plants are running things, but we don't think about it. But they're running things in the sense that they are what sustains life on Earth, right? Mm -hmm. By these biological processes. The fact that, you know, they sequester carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and they release oxygen into the atmosphere. All of that happens to be pretty important to us. Um, I think, <laughs> I, I love that, um, but uh, this wouldn't be a proper interview if I didn't um, somehow um, push you on something a little bit. It's a very male way of interviewing people, like trying to like crack someone open <laughs> to, to see, you know. But what, one thought I do have is uh, consciousness has, has become very popular recently and has been something that you've focused on. Um, I think you've talked about emergent properties um, are a result of complicated systems. Mm -hmm. very complex systems and consciousness is one of them right but one one of the things that i've been thinking of a lot is what if we're just overvaluing consciousness what if just as people the way that we experience the world is is through this the brain that we have and through the structures of the brain the, the way that we think of things you know with language and and ordering things um developing uh, being able to see like you know future predictions, all of that stuff. What if consciousnessness is just is just our way of existing and not a universal principle that a lot of people um, will say? And, and you've said before, like plants are conscious, and the and the whole world is like one conscious being. What if that's just a incorrect extrapolation of our experience as humans to the universe? So, in other words, we're taking our experience of consciousness, we're projecting it onto these other things, yeah. which appear to act in a conscious way, or we can project consciousness onto them because it reflects our consciousness. Like to, we're being imperialists? With well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> to, to put it another way, most of the universe isn't life. Right. We're the exception. Right. People like me think of the universe as being a like a big connection of kind of psychic energy or something like that. Right. Um, but I kind of think that I'm, I'm disagreeing with myself somehow. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I, I think That's most good. of the universe is dead. Yeah. And we're the exception. And it's inaccurate to think that the the rest of the universe plays by the the way that we feel when we like you know meditate or right. do psychedelics. Well, you know, you're free to have that that feeling. Um, I think this is a question of, you know, we tend to bandy these big words around without actually thinking about what they need mean. You know, we, we use words like consciousness, which is a huge loaded word. You mm -hmm. know, what does it mean to be conscious? What is consciousness? You know, my own, the way I sort of make this make sense for my own understanding. I'm I'm what you might call a panpsychist, you know, or or a pantheist, but I'm more of a panpsychist. A pantheist 
is someone who says the universe is God, right? I'm somebody who says, I'm a panpsychist, the universe is conscious, and everything in it is consciousness. Consciousness is built into the basic structure of the universe, just like Planck's constant or the gravitational constant or mm. these other things that are fundamental to existence, there's an element of consciousness. And so electrons are conscious and, you know, quarks are conscious. And as far down as you go, it, conscious in the sense that they are, it's not that they're self-reflecting beings, but they reflect sort of the inherent intelligence that you find in reality. You know, it's not that uh, uh, intelligence in the sense of sort of, um, how to put it, an elegance of the way things work. It reflects a kind of intelligence. It's not that there is an intelligent designer. There's no designer. The universe designs itself, and it designs itself from these fundamental principles so that, you know, at every level there is an element of consciousness, which may not be apparent, but as it gets more and more complex, more and more of these things come together, and at a certain point of complexity, it becomes clear that, yeah, this is a conscious, the, the, this is a conscious entity or whatever. But more fundamental structures of the universe may, may also be conscious in a certain sense, but not apparent to us you know this is all this is really a reflection of uh the philosophy of alfred north whitehead if, mm -hmm. if you know his work he was a mathematician he was a uh contemporary of uh bertrand russell and this was all in the 20s when quantum theory was was hot was just coming on and he, he his philosophy was uh, called process philosophy he talked a lot about processes and how how things happen um so that's that's kind of how i interpret it is that you find consciousness everywhere but you don't have to have brains you know brains are overrated i think but to have sufficiently complex networks signal transduction networks which can be a brain which can be the the networks of fungi and and roots in a in a forest that's a kind of a nervous system mm -hmm. you know you have to have a what's called neural networks they're neural but they're often not involving nerve nerves so it's a kind of a misnomer but the idea of these complex signal transduction networks and feedback loops and so on that's what you need for for consciousness yeah and that emerges at a certain level of organization below that level maybe those systems are conscious too but you know it's hard to say How do you, as a person and as a researcher, 
in a, in a weird way because like trying to figure out what's the truth is kind of the idea of like psychedelics anyway but in a more academic way how do you trust yourself and the research you're doing when you have people that are harder on you often for biased reasons well uh I yeah I don't know it's it's a it's a tough question to answer I don't get the feeling I mean I'm sure there are a lot of people who disagree with me about just practically everything <laughs> you know but, but I don't feel that there's a bunch of people trying to take me down you know I just don't get that feeling I feel that there is many people who who say you know, I don't agree with him. He's completely nuts, and he's just, you know, a harmless screwball. And there's certain uh, there's certain good things about being a harmless screwball. You know, <laughs> nobody takes you seriously. Nobody actually views you as a threat. So the the reaction is to just ignore him, ignore me, and yeah, I I don't get the feeling that there are people out there, you know pounding the table and saying McKenna is a danger to uh, to society and is corrupting the youth and all that all of which is probably true i mean i hope it's <laughs> i hope it's true but nobody's alarmed about it you know so far i mean i i've never gotten any heat about what i talk about i've never i mean it, it's kind of weird i mean it's like I don't know why that is. You know, maybe something's protecting me. Yeah. Or maybe what I'm saying is so just completely out there that nobody cares. People just dismiss it, except for the few that don't and find something to that resonates with them and what I say. Yeah, well, that, that's a good epigraph to have, you know, harmless screwball. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> harmless screwball right? um, when we think of the uh, proponents of psychedelics and educators of psychedelics there's a, a list of names um, and at the end of the list you kind of realize it's a bunch of white men um, you've kind of talked about giving proper um, yeah. praise and uh, citation to um, the stewards and, and the people that have cultivated some of these, but do you have, do you feel that this is a field of study or that that's, um, that's subject to the racism and sexism of our society? The study of psychedelics? Or maybe I'm not saying this correctly. I guess from the outside of someone that doesn't, isn't super close or connected to these um, ideas, is there as big of a racial and gender difference as if I just list off like Alan Wants, Terrence McKenna, uh, Timothy Leary? Well, yeah, I think there there is. I think that, uh, you know, I mean, I think that there may be a perception it's mostly, um, you know, a white, a white, men thing, although there are plenty of women involved in it too. Not as many people of color as there should be. I think this is maybe, this is something the psychedelic community needs to address. You know, how do you broaden this, this message culturally and reach out to 
to these folks, you know, who are often in a situation where they feel marginalized for lots of reasons. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the experience of being a African American or, you know, Hispanic or whatever, maybe African American is the better model. Uh, you know, they're marginalized from so many things. You know that that's that's just how they are, and it's not justified. I think that's part of the task is to be more inclusive and try to educate people, you know, um, like uh, communities of, of color have been so traumatized by drugs, you know, over the decades, especially in this, you know, not psychedelics. If they had psychedelics, they wouldn't have have had the traumas that they had with the, and it's not the drugs themselves. It's never the drugs themselves. It's mm -hmm. how they're used and how they're applied, you know, but I, I do think it's important to try to reach out to, you know, to increase the diversity, you know, that cliche, but I, I think that would be a good thing. I'm not sure how you achieve it, but yeah, there's some justification that you come to an event like we had the other night and there's not a lot of people of color there, mm. which is too bad. I would like to see more of it. So switching topics a bit back to this mainstreaming professionalization. One of, one of the persons I talked to in that group who is young, he wants to be like therapist and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and wants to have like psychedelics be integrated with that. He was telling me that he thinks the future, like a future where he sees it accepted here in mainstream Western society is microdosing psilocybin. Oh yeah, that's a big topic. Yeah, microdosing. And, and it's something that as I talk to more people in the group, like more people seem to be doing that, yeah. using that specifically for therapeutic means. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that, I think that microdosing is fine. I think it's kind of a fad uh, <laughs> yeah. right now. Everybody's microdosing, or many people are microdosing. This is something that came out of Silicon Valley. Um, <laughs> I think a few things about it. Number one, I think that uh, for various reasons it's not a good idea to microdose with LSD. I don't think you can, can you? <laughs> well, you can. All and right. people people do. They'll take a few, you know, like like, you know, 10 micrograms every right. few days or every other day. And it may or may not have an effect. I think a lot of microdosing is really a placebo effect in a certain way. But with LSD particularly, there there may be a, a risk. And the risk is that the way that LSD binds into the receptor is different than the other psychedelics. And it binds to receptors, the receptors, serotonin receptors, in such a way that part of the receptor folds over it. And so that's why it has such a long half-life and why it's so potent is because of this unique way it binds to the receptor. The other thing is it's not selective for just the 5-HT2A receptor, which is the one that's involved in the psychedelic response. It binds to a number of serotonin receptors. One of those is the 5-HT2B receptor. 
and the 5-HT2B receptor has been associated with this pathological condition called uh, valvular hypertrophy. It's a, it's a, a proliferation of valvular tissue uh, in the heart, and uh, it's irreversible, and it can be it can be life threatening if that happens. And it it uh, there were drugs in the late nineties. There was something called Fenfen that was a serotonergic agent. It was taken off the market because of this side effect. Normally, we don't take LSD every day or every other day, so there's no issue. You can take it, but when you constantly are hitting that 5-HT2B receptor, as you do when you microdose, there may be a risk of this. The other thing about microdosing is more of a a philosophical thing. I think that, you know, I mean, I've, I've tried microdosing with LSD and didn't get much effect. I've tried microdosing with mushrooms and get somewhat more effect. And I think it's fine, but I think that people should not make that an excuse for not taking a full heroic Terrence McKenna five gram hit of a psychedelic <laughs> and having an actual fucking psychedelic experience. Right. You know, I think that this is kind of an excuse for not doing that. That's oh yeah, I'm yeah. microdosing, man. I'm so cool. <laughs> you know, and and that's fine if you want to microdose, but don't forget that, you know, just a few grams higher and you're in a completely different place. Yeah. And I think what's important about you know, what we can learn mostly from the psychedelics happens when you, you know, drink the brew or, or you take a sufficient dose and you surrender to what's happened and you you get out of your default mode network into essentially an unfamiliar territory. That's where the learning goes on. Microdosing may give you a slight cognitive boost that's all i've ever noticed from it and that's fine i don't argue about that but that's not the future of psychedelics i mean it it's part of the future of psychedelics yeah it seems that it came out of silicon valley is kind of telling because it seems to be like we want to take a little bit of mushrooms and still be able to work yeah 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 and that's okay but then but the, and those people can do that but but then they should also remind themselves that this is not really you know, they they should make an effort to yeah, it's not like a Red know, Bull create a special occasion where they actually do take a full dose because mm-hmm. they'll get a lot more out of it creatively. You know, if they do that, I don't think Steve Jobs was microdosing. Steve Jobs was taking full-on psychedelic experiences with LSD. This has been part two of the three-part episode I recorded with Dennis McKenna and with Joey Peters as my co-interviewer, interviewer. If you have any questions, please email me at youreulogymail at gmail.com. I produced and did the music for this episode. Thank you, Joey, for um, setting up this interview and helping me with research. I will see you next week.
I'm gonna let this song play out. I I wrote music. I, I was once in a duet and I wanted to get a string section, so I found a software where you could transcribe music, and it had the benefit of you could just click a button and it would convert it into MIDI music. And so this is all the MIDI versions of orchestrations of some like songs I wrote a long time ago. I think it sounds really dope.